from WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm so glad you could tune in here on this Friday, January 20th. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really, really happy to welcome back to the program today our very good friend from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Wendy Mendisi. And today we're going to be talking about something that I think that you'll want to stay tuned for, because as you know, on this show, I often talk to specialists who work with very particular diseases or do very specific things. Well, today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Mendizi about why it's great to have a primary care veterinarian and, and how generalist veterinarians can really be the front line to prevent disease and illness in your pet. And we're going to talk about all of this when we come back after this news from NPR. Hi, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really happy to have you all tuned in here on this Friday, the 20th of January, 2023. And I'm really, really super-duper happy to have back on the program today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, our friend Dr. Wendy Mendisi. And today we're going to be talking about something on this program that is really going to be uh, of interest to a great many of you because while often on this program, as I said at the top of the hour, I frequently speak with specialists, and that's really important because when you have a pet that's dealing with a particular issue, it's really good to know what is going on. But in the course of talking with so many specialists, sometimes I think that it can be helpful too to understand the role of the kind of general practice veterinarian. That is to say, the primary care veterinarian who's the one who's going to see your pet for most of its life and do things like regular checkups and so forth. And so Dr. Mendisi is here to talk with me about all of this. So first, let me welcome you back to the program. It's so good to see you again. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Now, you have been a primary care veterinarian for a long time. You've probably (laughs) seen thousands of pets, right? I would say so, yes. Yeah. And you are kind of on sort of front line, so to speak, of caring for pets. Right. And and this is such an important role because while it is true that should an animal be experiencing something that is a very specific malady that might require a specialist, it's going to be the primary care veterinarian who's likely going to be the one to detect that malady in the first place and therefore guide the uh client to where to direct this animal to go for more care, but also just the the everyday sort of important stuff, uh, like keeping track of how well this animal's doing and getting its vaccinations and getting its teeth checked out and so forth. Right. One of the one of our big the things we like to focus on the most is preventive care. So of course, uh, most disorders are going to be more easily treated if they are detected early in the stage of the process. And so, um, annual exams. Of course, you know vaccines, um, preventatives, those kind of things are very um, important. And that's something that we are going to talk about at every one of your annual visits or biannual visits. Um, but again, that. That annual um, exam is a really, really important part of preventive care. There's so many things that we can detect in that physical exam that we perform every year that um, we may find things that there that patient has absolutely no clinical signs of at home, um, and the owner really doesn't even you know know that there's something wrong until we're able to detect that um, at that patient's annual evaluation. Yeah, so maybe let's distinguish here between 
what one might call uh, a well visit and a visit for some sort of concern that sure. a pet owner might have. <clears throat> right. So an annual exam, just like I was talking about, that's going to be doing a physical exam, updating any vaccinations, updating any testing that that animal needs. So that would be a well visit, you know, for, that we would uh, recommend at least annually. As animals get older, we do recommend doing it more often, like every six months. Um, but probably up until around uh, six, eight years of age, uh, it's something we're going to do annually. And then, of course, we also see patients that are not feeling well. Maybe they are vomiting or maybe they have a urinary tract infection or lameness. Really anything. Really, we're sort of the first line of defense when an animal is sick. Uh, most uh, people are going to take that pet to see their general practice veterinarian. And then most of those things are things that we can treat ourselves. And as you mentioned before, there are going to be some disorders that may be better uh, served by treatment by a specialist. But of course, you know, we'll know how to direct those patients to the appropriate care. And while you happen to work at a place that also employs many specialists, many of the neighborhood veterinarians around still are well-versed in what constitutes a condition that would benefit from the treatment by a specialist and, and likely have names to recommend. Oh, absolutely. And again, you know, part of veterinary training is going to be having students go through each specialty service. So they are very familiar with what services those specialists provide. So once they are out in practice, if they're practicing general practice, then they, um, they're they very well versed at knowing um, it, when a patient is going to be better served by seeing a specialist. And is there a difference, a significant difference between, say, the primary care veterinarian and sort of an emergency clinic type veterinarian? I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of depends on the emergency clinic. Um, some emergency clinics, they focus primarily on emergency. Our uh, emergency department at the University of Florida, we also uh, focus on critical care. So in addition to emergency, uh, they are going to be spending time um, and resources caring for very critically ill patients too, whereas some emergency facilities are just going to focus on the emergency. And if more critical care is required, then they may be transferred to a university setting or another practice. Um, so there, there is a little bit of a difference. Um, you know, general practitioners see quite a few emergencies as well. So, um, you know, an animal that is hit by a car or, you know, bit by a snake, like, you know, there's so many different possible emergencies. Uh, most of those patients will actually be taken, if it's during normal business hours, will be taken to their regular veterinarian for care. And again, many uh, general practice veterinarians are fully equipped and qualified to deal with those emergencies. But again, we do know when it would be better served for that patient to see a specialist. Now, are there any numbers or any kind of ratios that we know of between veterinarians across the country that are in general practice and veterinarians that specialize in something? Yeah, I don't I don't know the specific numbers on that, but by far more um, more veterinarians practice general practice than go into specialty practice. I, I, I don't know the exact percentages, but um, I would probably say out of each of our graduating classes, so I can you know only look at the University of Florida graduating class, but um, probably about 60 to 75 percent of those uh, students will go into general practice. And I, I mentioned this because while uh, Gainesville is a, a good middle-sized town, uh, and of course, we do have a, a university, so that maybe makes us a little bit different. Nevertheless, uh, one can't go more than a mile or so in this town with, <laughs> without passing a, a veterinary office sure. uh, of yeah. a general 
practice veterinarian, and this makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. because we know that probably at least half the households in America have a pet of some mm-hmm. kind or another, and these pets benefit from veterinary care, preventative or otherwise, and so there's probably a pretty good market for trained veterinarians in general practice. Oh, absolutely. And you might think, I mean, given the number of practices you see, like as, you, as you mentioned on your way to work, you see you see lots of different practices. Mean, there are quite a few in Gainesville. And um, you would think that given the number of practices, that a lot of those practices would, you know, have, have slower business. But we, in, in general, it's sort of a phenomenon that's happening right now. Veterinary medicine is, um, I mean, we're, we, we have waiting list to see patients. I mean, not just at the university, but but in general practice too. It's sort of a a, a nationwide, um, you know, epidemic, if you will. That we, that we we are we're very uh, we have we have lots and lots of appointments um, to the point of having waiting list for our patients. I, I wonder if if you can tell me whether or not you consider this a, a good thing or a bad thing. Is it a good thing because it it indicates that people are seeking veterinary care for their pets? Or is it a bad thing because the industry is struggling to keep up with a a demand? Well, I think both. I mean, we we want all pets to have veterinary care. So um, we we think it's a good thing that that many patients are, are... are seeking out veterinary care. A bad thing in that, you know, it can be really easy to get burned out. And we hate, you know, we hate making anybody wait for an appointment. And so, um, you know, we do what we can to try to, especially with sicker animals, get them in um, sooner rather than later. And so that can, you know, lead to a really, really busy day. So I guess, you know, there's good and bad in it. Now, do many veterinary offices have some sort of triage system? That is to say, if you if you arrive with a pet that is seriously injured, right. uh, will you likely be seen right away? Oh, certainly, yes. I mean, if it's a if it's a life threatening emergency, or if the animal is very critically ill, say for example, having trouble breathing, or looks like they're unstable, then that animal will be triaged. And I mean, the great thing is most other pet owners are very understanding of that because they would want the same for their pet if they came in and in, in distress. And so, um, yes, we would certainly put that uh, patient at the forefront of our care. Yeah. Okay. So let us now then talk about kind of the structure of the average sort of veterinary office that is in general practice. They likely have, uh, of course, they certainly will have a veterinarian. Right. Maybe sometimes in some cases, maybe it's just one. Sometimes. Um, But then they probably also have some sort of uh, veterinary technician. Oh, yes. And uh, maybe even a receptionist or other sort of uh, office help that can help schedule appointments and and do clerical things and so forth. Oh, yes. Yeah. Usually, I mean, you explained the structure. Yeah. I mean, usually there is a a receptionist or what we call a client service representative that's going to uh, be the one to talk to a clients on the phone, greet them when they come in. Um, usually there is a technical staff, um, kind of think of it as a, a nursing staff, um, and um, and then a team of veterinarians, as you, as you mentioned, sometimes in some practices, maybe a single veterinarian. And in these types of environments, of course, everybody is really playing an important role because while, of course, the practice couldn't exist without the veterinarian, you could almost say that the practice couldn't exist without any of the other individuals sure. involved because it has to operate in in a way in which everybody is 
cooperating because oh, sure. otherwise just animals are just not going to get the treatment they need. Right. Yeah. It makes all the difference to have a team that really works well together. And, um, and, and, and often that's the case. I mean, most people that go into veterinary medicine, whether you're working um, as a technician or client services representative or a veterinarian, I mean, we, we really do go into this field because we love animals and, um, you know, want the best for them and for their owners. And so, um, yeah, I find that in most environments, and I've worked in, in multiple practices and in most environments, it's, you know, it's very clear that we're all working toward the same goal, which is, um, you know, to, to take care of animals and, um, and their clients. Now, veterinary, veterinarians who are in general practice uh, have undergone the exact same training that any veterinarian has gone through, right? Whether or not you're practicing in a place where you are going to be seeing you know, dogs and cats mostly, mm-hmm. or maybe you are in a place where you're likely going to see some animals that are more, uh, I don't know, let's say agricultural in nature. Mm-hmm. You will, you will have, every one of them will have gone uh, to a veterinary school of some sort and will have uh, experience treating many different kinds of animals, right? Sure. As a, as a veterinary graduate, you are going to have some experience treating um, horses, uh, other large animals, um, exotic animals, and small animals. And so you'll have at least a little bit of experience. Usually students will focus, if, say, for example, they want to do equine medicine, they're going to focus more on those classes and those rotations that give them more experience in that. Um, a lot of what we learn as veterinarians is as veterinarians. And so you might get some exotic animal experience um, when you're in veterinary school, but once you get out in practice, there may be certain exotic species that you've never seen before and you um, you know just do a little bit of extra extra education, continuing education on those species and um, and, and you know sometimes uh, learning from a mentor. and then um, you know after you see 10, 20, 30 of them, you know, you get a bit better and well, more well-versed at seeing those exotic species. Some veterinarians say, you know what, I never want to see an exotic animal, and um, that and that's something that they that they don't do. And so it is okay to, to say this is, you know, primarily what I want to focus on. Um, I saw when I was in general practice, I saw quite a few small mammal exotics. Um, that's something that I really liked, guinea pigs, rabbits, uh, mice, hamsters, those kind of things. I was not as interested in, you know, snakes and, and um, other reptiles and birds. And so we had another practitioner that was more interested in those. And so that's a great thing about general practice is you kind of uh, can, you know, just take some continuing education classes toward the things that you're interested in. Now, I am not asking you to say that one is harder than the other, but it occurs to me that it 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 could be possible that the sort of general practice veterinarian has the has a challenge that maybe someone who specializes in a particular condition or uh, a, con- a type of animal, for instance, m- might not have. And that is that someone who is specializing, of course, has gone through all the veterinary training and has yeah. seen dogs and cats uh, uh, and done um, all the other things that a, a general practice veterinarian will have done. But maybe, especially if that person is further along in her career, it might have been a long time before that person did, say, a dental cleaning. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, our experiences may be a little uh, more varied. That's what I was <laughs> Definitely. getting at. Yeah. yeah so yeah. <laughs> as, as a veterinarian in general practice, that veterinarian is going to have to deal with such a wide variety right. of circumstances. Now, it sure, it may be the case that that veterinarian is doing several spay and neuters per week or sure. uh, dental cleanings right. or just general checkups. But 
there's also going to be stuff that comes up just about every week that is going to be, um, you know, more uh, broad ranging than sure. many specialists will right. deal with. And, and, and the thing about uh, general practice is that we will see things that maybe should see a specialist. We would be a lot more comfortable if they if these patients um, were under the care of a specialist. But there is an, you know, there's an additional cost associated with those referrals and sometimes um, often even the treatment. And so what we find ourselves we find ourselves often in the position that um, it's us or no one because uh, maybe that is a client that can't afford to do uh, to see a specialist and go down that road. And so we, you know, regardless of whether we're super comfortable or not, um, we are going to have to manage that case. And we learn a lot from that. And we have such an amazing uh, specialist team. I mean, at the university and then other locations as well. That so many of them are, are are great about like talking us through some of those cases where we can just call and get advice from. Them. Them and and so they're they're always happy to talk, you know, kind of talk us through some things. But we do find ourselves in that situation. I mean, quite often, especially depending on you know where you're working, where um, there may be a lot of people that um, are more limited financially in what they're able to provide for their pet. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. But I, I wonder if you could tell me whether or not that kind of decision making is ever fraught for you, because on one hand, you are in a kind of unique position of having so many colleagues who do specialize in things like maybe oncology Mm -hmm. or maybe, you know, questions regarding diet or or allergies or something to that effect. And and you can like, you know, dermatology or something like that. You you can you can talk to so many uh, of your colleagues and and get those kinds of uh, second opinions or or advice or counsel if, if you feel that that's appropriate. In a sort of neighborhood veterinary setting, do you think that there's cases in which the veterinarians there feel ever like they're kind of between a rock and a hard place? Because on one hand, they want to be able to provide the care that this animal needs, and they are aware that maybe they're in a place where access to veterinary specialists is limited and or the client's budget is limited. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, get, I think we, 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 that's something we deal with regularly. But I will say, I think there's a misconception that, um, you know, gen, that in general practice, that, um, you know, if there is a sick animal, we, you know, that, that that animal needs to see a specialist. The truth is, because there are additional costs associated with specialty care, um, g- general practitioners are really quite good, usually, at treating very sick animals. Again, there's always those cases that we feel like they're, they're going to be better served uh, by a specialist, but they usually tend to be the outliers. So um, whereas maybe it's a little different than, than human primary care, where a lot of times, um, you know, an illness is triaged to the special to special the specialist that's going to deal with that disorder. Um, in general practice, we do quite a bit of very baseline oncology. We do quite a bit of um, even some pretty complex surgeries. Um, you know, dermatology, especially again in, in Florida, um, we have to be pretty good <laughs> at treating um, a lot of uh, dermatology patients because um, you know Florida we have a lot of allergens here, and so dermatology. Is a, a constant need uh, here, and so most general practitioners are pretty good about about treating these. Now, again, there's always the outlying cases that are a little bit uh, different than what we would typically see, and um, and again, we, we would talk certainly in those cases about seeing a specialist, knowing that that might not be an option for that client. And the good news is 
there are specialists that even if you're not in an area where um, there might be one readily available, at least you can consult with one um, by, via, via phone. And again, most of them are, are great about, you know, kind of talking us through things. One more thing that the veterinarian who is in general practice will have experience with, and this might make a big, this might really be significant to the client as well as the pet for obvious reasons. And that is that you might see an animal from the time it is a kitten or a puppy mm-hmm. until until it's in its very old age. Right. That is often the case, yes, um, is that we will uh, see them throughout their entire life. And this allows a couple things. One, for you as a veterinarian to have a pretty thorough understanding of this animal's history sure. in terms of its its conditions and so forth, but also the relationship that you will have forged with the clients. And that is something that you almost can't put a price on. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that most general practitioners would tell you is one of the most special things about their job is that that we do we are able to establish um, that relationship early on. And, and many, many of our patients we see as new puppies. And then, you know, 13 years later, you know, we perform euthanasia at the end of that animal's life. And so that is very special to be able to go through um, all stages of, you know, puppyhood and then, you know, starting to take care of their health problems, having that communication with the client um, when, you know, we need to discuss end-of-life care. Um, That is, it's a very special relationship. Is that extra hard for you, though? Um, I, you know, I wouldn't say that. Like I said, I, I, I every, again, every veterinarian's different. Every, you know, just all personalities are different too. And so I actually look at that as a, um, you know, a very special thing, um, and something that I am, I'm privileged and glad to be able to do. I mean, we go into this profession knowing that our patients have a finite lifespan that's not the same as ours, and so that we are most likely going to have to say goodbye to our pets. And so we know that going in, and our clients know that going in. And so um, it's, you know, I, I don't consider it to be especially hard. You know, some patients are, are harder than others, especially when, um, you know, they are very sick or maybe they're prematurely sick, you know, sooner than what we would have expected or liked, you know, which of course can happen. And so, um, yeah, it can be hard, but um, in general, I think it's a very special relationship that we form um, with our with our clients. And why parts of, while parts of it might be hard, I think the, the, it's, a, it's a really great overall relationship we're able to form. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Mendezi, let's take our first break here. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Wendy Mendezi, and we're talking about the role of the primary care veterinarian, and we'll be back with more of the program right after this. Please stay tuned. Hi, welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Wendy Mendici. And we're talking today about the role of the primary care veterinarian, especially as it pertains to kind of preventative medicine. And here's where uh, we'll kind of discuss some of the nuts and bolts stuff, if we can, Dr. Mendici. When you are in the clinic, you will, as we've discussed in the first part of the program, see a variety of different animals for a variety of different conditions. Sometimes these animals are perfectly well. Sometimes these animals are maybe feeling a bit under the weather. Sometimes they're young. Sometimes they're old. Uh, But is there, in general, an overall kind of flow 
to the appointment that uh, the client has in bringing the pet in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think more than the the flow, I mean, of course, we're going to get a good thorough history about what's exactly going on with that uh, pet, whether they're, um, and, and you know, you know, we see many for, for sick visits, but even an annual wellness, for example, on a you know, 13-year-old dog, um, while the dog is there just to prevent, I mean, present for its annual exam, um, there are often many things going on. That dog usually has some degree of arthritis, maybe vision loss, um, you know, just to usually at that age, probably some periodontal disease. You know, these are all the things that, um, you know, it's, it seems like it's a, a quick in and out annual a wellness visit, but sometimes that list can be quite long of things that are going on. Again, it's our job to um, manage each of those things for our primary care patients. And so, um, but certainly there is a a flow and routine to the exam we do. So we do the same exam for every single patient that we see, regardless of their presentation, Um, because there's plenty of times an animal might come in for for example, itchy skin, and when we uh, palpate their abdomen, we find that they have a really enlarged spleen, something that could be uh, very, very serious. And so, again, it's really important for us, and and something that we teach our our primary care students, it's very important for us to focus on a thorough physical exam for our primary care patients. Okay, now I promise here uh, I'm not going to take this information and open my own underground veterinary (laughs) clinic, but guide me through that that exam, because some of this uh, occurs out of sight of the client? Sometimes, yes. And so um, our exam, and again, every practitioner sort of has their own routine, but the important thing is that you have a routine. And so um, we we take care to look in um, the eyes, looking for any changes. Um, sometimes you can actually, on looking, um, doing an eye exam, you can find things that might indicate there's something else going on. Burst blood vessels in the back of the eye may mean hypertension, which could mean kidney disease, hyperthyroidism in a cat, you know, things like that. Um, looking in their eyes, looking in their ears, um, looking at their teeth. That's one of those hidden things a lot of people don't realize. Uh, periodontal disease often happens, um, you know, at a young age and then and then progresses. And so that, you know, I know we've talked about this on a previous show with dental care, but um, that, you know, doggy breath that, that a lot of people think that, you know, they, they see in their dog. I mean, really, that often means that there's quite a bit of bacteria and calculus and, um, and gingivitis and inflammation in the mouth. And so, um, you know, doing a thorough oral exam You'd be amazed at the number of um, times we find fractured teeth, uh, gingival recession, really bad periodontal disease, even mobile teeth. And the and the owner has no idea because most animals will eat, you know, they won't stop eating. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that we would look for. But because it's such a chronic discomfort, it actually takes quite a lot for an animal to stop eating normally. So that would be one of the things that we that we always look at. We're going to listen to their heart and lungs. We're going to do an abdominal palpation making sure we don't feel anything abnormal. Um, we're going to do a joint palpation to see if their range of motion is good. There may be some early arthritis, something that we can maybe intervene with early to help pr- slow that progression. And we're going to take a good look at uh, their skin, looking for any masses, um, ulcerations, um, something that, um, again, maybe an owner hasn't noticed, but it is a red flag that there may be something more going on. And as a primary care veterinarian, you are doing a lot of this in conjunction with veterinary technicians who will yes. do some of do some of these things, like you know, check the weight and so forth. Sure. Um, uh, describe describe the process that you have 
in working with veterinary technicians? This has got to be a pretty cooperative relationship. Oh, it is, and they're invaluable. Um, we, you know, absolutely love our team of technicians, you know, here at UF Primary Care. Um, and they, um, you know, they're, I, 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 I would certainly even say there's plenty of times that when we're talking about a case, they will sometimes suggest uh, solutions or um, even potential diagnoses that we haven't even thought about. And so um, it, they are really an invaluable uh, part of the team. They know how to handle animals. Their technical skills are fantastic. They're able to uh, draw blood. And it, it really makes our job a lot easier because we may have come up with a plan for a patient and uh, we can say, hey, you know, can you get a blood pressure? Can you draw some blood? Can you submit it? And then we're able to go and see our next patient and know that that first patient's being well cared for and all of the things we need are being done. Now, You've just done the exam, mm -hmm. and you may have discovered something that might require attention. Let's say that this is a case in which it is uh, the teeth. Sure. Okay. Now, this is probably pretty common, and, and you then will go and speak to the client for mm -hmm. a few minutes, and you will detail kind of what it is that you have found, mm -hmm. and... That is a situation where probably depending on the severity of whatever mm -hmm. it is that you're talking about, you know, that conversation goes well or, or sure. le less well. Uh, <laughs> right. But, you know, if it's something like, say, teeth, now you're you're presenting the client with your findings, and then probably laying out some options. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we should, for each thing we find, so for, again, for a, for any, you know, given patient, you may have, you know, that a weight, a weight concern, like maybe that animal is a little bit overweight, periodontal disease. We found a mass that we're concerned about on the skin, um, some changes in the eyes. So, you, you know, we make a list and we go in, and again, it's our job to not only um, talk about each of these, what each of those findings could mean, um, but also have a plan. Um, for either further diagnostics or treatment, and um, so yeah, I mean that's that that is that's all part of it. So uh, it's it's rarely a short discussion. Sometimes we can spend quite some time uh, coming up with a plan. Um, and again, you know, given that you know, most veterinary patients do not have um, insurance, so that's something that's very different than human medicine, where most of these things that are recommended are going to be covered by insurance. So cost isn't often a big discussion with our patients cost is a very important discussion. So for everything that we're recommending, um, we need to also be able to have plan B and sometimes plan C if plan A is not is going to be cost prohibitive. Right. And, and as we know from many years of uh, doing this program, and it, for very few people who are listening to the show, uh, money is no object, right? For the vast majority of us, there are considerations to be made. And while it it can break our heart to mm -hmm. think that our ability to offer care to this animal we love is limited by our financial resources, right. that is very often the case. Now, you know, it, it happens that sometimes while uh, we might be surprised at this animals veterinary needs if we figure that the prognosis looks good if we were able to do this then sometimes our friend the credit card can be very <laughs> helpful uh, but nevertheless the discussion that you have with patients is probably sometimes one that has to do with you know cost and right. and but if you can give people a range of options then that probably you know m improves the uh 
the way that the client will take in this information. Sure, right. We never want to present anything as, as all or nothing, um, even though sometimes there is going to be a treatment option that is going to be much more likely to result in that patient survival. We never want to um, present something as all or nothing. We do almost always need to have a plan B and plan C, and sometimes that plan C is euthanasia of that patient because, again, our goal is to treat um, every patient that we have humanely. And so if, um, you know, the patient is critically ill enough to the point that probably treatment options are going to be extremely limited or extremely financially prohibitive, then we still need to do what is in the best interest of that patient. And so, um, again, that can be that can be difficult. Those can be very difficult discussions. And so, um, we you know we one of the things we provide for our students at UF is we we do have communication training where we actually practice some of these difficult discussions, so they are more prepared once they're veterinarians and having um, these types of, of of discussions that really don't happen in many other fields because again, euthanasia is um, something that we mainly just see in veterinary medicine. And so um, it's not something they're going to get a lot of practice in with other communication techniques. Right. And I'm sure that it's happened to you before, and I've spoken to many of your colleagues before who have who have told me that it can be hard to hear a client who, under a great deal of stress, will say, well, you must just not care. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think I think we've all gotten that at one point or another. But um, again, I mean, it, it just you, most of those comments are, you know, just out of fear and um, and people that are just very, uh, very upset about those circumstances. And we completely understand. I mean, we've all been there ourselves with our own pets. And so we do um, understand. And so, uh, the, again, these are these can be very delicate conversations, um, very draining conversations sometimes. I mean, that's, you know, it can, it can be emotionally taxing. Um, but it is important to uh, sit down and try to, you know, communicate with with these clients about what their options are, and um, and and also prognosis. I mean, you know, it, it, it's sometimes no matter how much, how, you know, how many financial resources a client has, the prognosis for that patient is going to be very, very um, poor. And so that's a discussion that that it's important for us to have because, you know, we, we also, there's, you know, we, we also don't like seeing someone, you know, borrow a very, very large amount of money that, you know, that they are, may or may not be able to pay back for and, you know, for, for a very, again, that's their decision yeah, to make. Course. But it is a, um, it, again, it's part of those delicate conversations we have to just make sure that they understand the prognosis for their pet. Well, and and so there's a challenge on, on both ends, because on one hand, you you don't want to give anybody any kind of false hope when sure. you yourself as a veterinarian feel it is unlikely right. that any amount of money can help. Right. And, you know, I mean, if you're talking about, you know, a 16-year-old St. Bernard who's <laughs> right. just got a dozen problems, right. yeah. uh, you know, sure, um, you know, some sort of uh, oligarch or tycoon might mm-hmm. have plenty of money to right. throw at the problem, but as we know, I mean, health is just health, and there's yeah. at, at at certain point, money can't make the difference. So you've got to kind of have these conversations. And I imagine that pretty often you are asked the question, "Well, what would you do if oh, it was your all pet? the time?" Yeah, and it's funny. Every veterinarian has a different approach to that. Some do not like that question, and they you know just are not comfortable answering it. I mean, I kind of my own approach is that you know if a client is gonna 
ask me that question, I am happy to answer it honestly. Um, and again, my answer may be different than another veterinarian. So just because I am a veterinarian and I answer the question doesn't make it the right answer. Um, but I feel like that's somebody trying to connect uh, with yes. you and find out, you know, just trying to find out what would you do. And again, I'm I'm usually happy to answer that question, but not <laughs> but I, not every veterinarian I, is. I, yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of sorry to hear that because I do feel like that that is about the most human question right. that a person can ask. This is a person who has maybe just recently learned some news that has the potential to be very upsetting and and really to uh, to affect this person's life in, sure. in some sort of meaningful way. Right. And we all kind of feel like in those moments we could benefit from some kind of human connection, right. and whether or not we're conscious of that. And so that question seems to me uh, to be one that is is at the same is at the same time like yes it's it's difficult because right. no one can can you know no one but the client can really make this decision right. uh, and and there are really I don't know I mean the veterinarian is sort of a disinterested party but not not a hundred percent you know so this is just a person who's trying to reach out and and. Uh, and understand things better. So this this is this is all really fascinating. But of course, I, I want to also talk about some of the circumstances in which you have an appointment that everything's just great. Like yeah. I, for instance, uh, I have a, a cat who's about two years old, two or three years old, maybe uh, Margaret Oliver, and she had a rec- her recent veterinary appointment, and I you know I took her in. Veterinarian told me everything's great. Yeah. Here you go. Gave her her gave her her you know uh, what do you call it her rabies vaccine sure. and we were on our way. Yeah, and we love those visits. <laughs> we love to we love to tell people you know everything really looks fantastic. Um, we usually like to you know touch on things like making sure you know to keep their weight under control even if they look great. Just kind of keeping it in the back of their mind. Brushing teeth, you know, just sort of reminding people of basic wellness care uh, to help prevent problems. Um, but we certainly love those visits where every everything looks great and um, it's a healthy happy pet and uh, again um, you know those that, that that's a good day when we have those when we have a majority of those appointments yeah all right well this is where we're going to take our second break I want to remind listeners that this is animal airwaves live here on WUFTFM I'm Dana Hill my guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is our very good friend Dr. Wendy Mendizi and we'll be back with more right after this stay tuned Hi, welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Wendy Mendizi, and we're talking about the role of the primary care veterinarian, especially as it relates to preventive preventative medicine. And when we left off, Dr. Mendizi, we've been talking about some of the things that you do during a veterinary exam and things that you look for and, and maybe some of the kind of you know, uh, in different sorts of cases that you might see on a on day-to-day basis. I want to talk a little bit about one that we don't really talk a lot about on this program in terms of specifics, although it's got to be one of the most common 
procedures that you perform, and that is the, a spay-neuter. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's something that um, is definitely going to be performed by your general practitioner. And um, it is it is recommended, you know, not everyone is going to pursue that um, surgery. So, for example, if you have a show dog or cat or a breeding animal, then uh, spay-neuter isn't something that you're probably going to do, um, at least early in that animal's life. Um, but for most of our patients, um, we do recommend spaying and neutering um, at a fairly young age to prevent disease as they get older. Talk about some of the diseases that spaying and neutering can prevent, <laughs> aside from pregnancy. Sure, right, well, right, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, we, we have kind of the, the things that we've historically thought, and I will tell you there's a lot of new research on the benefits, um, the pros and the cons of early spay and neuter, and so that's something that's still uh, definitely um, in the works as far as uh, what are, what are, where our recommendations are going to land. But in general, um, one thing that we know for sure is that uh, by uh, for female animals especially, by spaying them early before a first heat cycle, um, you really greatly diminish the chance of them developing mammary tumors, so really the equivalent of breast cancer in humans, um, which can be a, life, uh, a life-threatening uh, condition as dogs and cats get older. And so um, really it only takes a few heat cycles for that chance uh, of them getting those tumors as they get older uh, to go up quite a bit, even after they're spayed. And so um, for, you know, that's one of the things we talk about. In intact female animals, we also see um, pyometra, which is an infection in the uterus, which can also be life-threatening and requires emergency surgery often. And so um, that's one thing that by uh, removing the uterus, which is what we do in a spay procedure, that um, that chance goes completely away. Um, same with testicular tumors in dogs. Obviously, um, once we neuter them, that chance goes completely away. Same with um, certain prostate tumors or perianal tumors in male dogs. Um, like I said, there's a lot of uh, debate right now and a lot of discussion and research going on. Um, but, you know, one thing that we do know is sometimes early sterilization can actually lead to um, maybe some joint disease as they get older. And so these are definitely things to discuss with your veterinarian. Again, we're learning new stuff all the time about a lot of these things. And so um, your veterinarian should be, you know, pretty well versed because, again, these are procedures we do quite often. And so, um, you know, we usually when you have that discussion, you can ask about the newest uh, research that's being done. And for your particular dog, uh, what would be the best recommendation? Every animal is different. For example, a young dog that might have aggression issues, a young male dog, neutering may be very beneficial in helping those behavior um, issues. And so um, there's so many things that go into those recommendations. It's, it's certainly not a cut and dry uh, decision. Many rescue animals are going to be uh, sterilized prior to adoption. But again, um, that's because the goal of most rescue groups is to prevent prevent any other unwanted um, litters. And so um, that is going to be something that is going to be done usually before you get uh, that, that, that animal from a rescue group. But if you have a puppy or a kitten that you are, um, that you get, you know, when they're young and they're not sterilized yet, again, talk to your veterinarian about all the pros and cons. Um, and again, each individual animal is going to have its own needs re in regards to that. All right. So first of all, ignore the noise in the background. I want to ask you a question related to the vet, the pets that are being adopted. When I adopted yep. Margaret Oliver, mm -hmm. she was, we picked her up and then we were instructed to take her to a veterinarian yes. for for a kind of exam. Sure. Um, 
What happens in those very first exams? Anything different from the exams that will happen later on? No, like I said, on presentation, our exam, you know, because we don't want to, we don't want to miss anything, and so it's really easy to say, "Ah, oh, it's a healthy animal." It was just examined, you know, at the shelter, and and so uh, to abbreviate that. But that's where you could miss something that um, maybe wasn't caught before, maybe wasn't even there before, and so our exam is going to be the same regardless. And so most of the time, we're doing the same things that I outlined earlier, uh, taking a look. Sometimes we might even find for example, teeth that are missing. So that actually can be a bigger problem than you think. Certainly the animal is not going to have any problems uh, with a, with a you know, few fewer teeth in their mouth, but sometimes missing teeth can mean that they have an unerupted tooth, which can actually progress and lead to jaw fracture as they get older. So that's something that that we're going to be looking for that, that that maybe not everybody is going to really notice. Of course, you know, I, my service is, is also the dentistry service, so I think we're maybe more attuned to, to that than, than maybe some others, but that's something that um, we would definitely definitely look at. Heart murmurs are often found incidentally. And again, depending on the animal, um, you know, maybe it's transient, maybe it's something that's not there all the time, or maybe it's something that means a severe disease or that, you know, maybe it could be diet related. I mean, these are all things that um, once we detect something, we're going to go over all the different possibilities with the owner to try to get to the bottom of it. Let's talk a bit about vaccines, because mm-hmm. that's going to be something that you as a veterinarian will recommend to your clients uh, for their for their pets. Right. What kind of different vaccines do primary care veterinarians consistently work with? Right. So we have a set of core vaccinations, and then we have what's called non-core vaccinations. So core vaccinations are going to be um, those diseases that every animal should be vaccinated against because they're the most common diseases that we see and often can be very life-threatening. So for example, a dog, that's going to be rabies, uh, which actually is a a public health mandate that the animal be vaccinated for rabies. So um, that is a rabies vaccine. And then the distemper-parvo combination. Distemper and parvo are are potentially deadly uh, diseases, very communicable in young dogs. And so those are going to be core vaccines. Other vaccines for dogs, non-core vaccinations would be Bordetella and influenza, that that's going to be if they really go around other dogs, dog parks, groomers, boarding, um, doggy daycare, uh, those animals would be much more at risk for those um, diseases. And so we would recommend vaccinating against those things. Leptospirosis is a bacterial infection carried in the urine of wild animals. So animals that go hiking, camping, swimming, you have a lot of property, uh, you know, that would be, um, certainly we would consider those animals at risk for that disease. So we really, it's part of our history that we get from each of our clients um, because we want to make sure we tailor the vaccine protocol uh, to that animal's needs based on its lifestyle. Um, Same with with cats, um, rabies and um, feline upper respiratory virus vaccine. Those are core vaccines, very common uh, to have upper respiratory uh, diseases in young cats especially. Um, What would be non-core would would be feline leukemia. Um, That really is going to be a cat that's at risk, um, is going to be an outdoor cat or an indoor or outdoor cat, cats that um, experience, you know, may have encounters with other um, outdoor cats. So again, that would be what we consider a non-core vaccine. So each time we talk about vaccinations with our clients, we're getting a really thorough history about what their risk factors are. We have about a minute and a half left, Dr. Medizzi. And I want to ask you kind of lastly, talk to me a little bit about the role of the primary care veterinarian and just 
being a resource for the pet owner and answering those questions that we all will eventually have. Oh, sure. I mean, again, when we have that, um, whether it's an annual exam or a sick exam, part of our uh, job is to answer the clients that, uh, I'm sorry, the the questions that our clients have. And uh, sometimes, you know, there's a lot of information out there. And so, um, you know, you can Google something and and there's a lot of great information and there's a lot of not great (laughs) information. And so, um, but we want our clients, whether or not they feel comfortable asking those questions, if they have questions, we want to be able to answer them. And then not just that, but provide resources that back up our recommendations. Um, It shouldn't just be, you know, based on what we say. We should be able to explain why we're making those recommendations and give them the resources to explain why we're making those recommendations. And so those, you know, we answer lots and lots of questions. And um, I would encourage all my clients to ask what, even if they, you know, think it's not a great question, I think that, um, that I would encourage them to, to ask any questions they have pertaining to their pet's health. Oh, well, uh, Wendy Medici, thank you so much for, for coming in and talking us uh, to, uh, to me again today. I love having you here. It's always good to see you. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. Wendy Medici is a veterinarian at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, where I also want to thank Sarah Carey for her help, help with the program and Amanda Buckley as well. And thank you all for listening. I'm so glad to have had you along this afternoon for this episode of Animal Airwaves Live. And I do hope that you will join me again next week for another episode. Have a great week weekend. Bye-bye.